So how do we, in 2018, United States of America, Houston, Texas, doing pretty well for ourselves, how do we become such cynical people sometimes? How does it happen? I don't know about you. Like, I'm sure there's that person in the room that's actually not cynical. And you're like the, the light in our dark, dark world. Like you're the, the one ray of light. There's like three of you here. And the rest of us really struggle with this. Because cynicism as we know it today really boils down to just losing faith in humanity, just losing all hope that anything in the world will ever change, and sometimes losing any sense of meaning. Like the jobs we're doing and the lives we're leading, like it doesn't really mean anything, or are we just here by some cosmic accident, the products of some evolutionary process that probably shouldn't have happened, statistically speaking, but here we are, so what? I'm not sure how it happens, I just know it does happen. It happens to me. Cynicism is one of my darkest battles, even now, almost six years after finding Jesus and my purpose in him. Um, I still struggle with the remnants of the man I used to be. And so I, I know I'm not alone. I think, in fact, um, we're in the majority, those of us who struggle with cynicism. And the best illustration I could think of to really bring this home as we start this series was this great clip from this movie I grew up loving. It's a 90s movie. I love 90s movies, if you ever wanted to know more about your pastor. I love <laughs> 90s movies, and uh, a little too much. This movie, City Slickers, in this clip, uh, Billy Crystal uh, really sums up at his son's uh, take your dad to work day, career day, or whatever, uh, really sums up how we become so cynical. So check this out. Mr. Robbins. What? Value this time in your life, kids. Because this is the time in your life when you still have your choices. And it goes by so fast. When you're a teenager, you think you can do anything, and you do. Your 20s are a blur. 30s, you raise your family, you make a little money, and you think to yourself, what happened to my 20s? 40s? You grow a little pot belly, you grow another chin. The music starts to get too loud. One of your old girlfriends from high school becomes a grandmother. 50s, you have a minor surgery. You'll call it a procedure, but it's a surgery. 60s, you'll have a major surgery. The music is still loud, but it doesn't matter because you can't hear it anyway. The 70s, you and the wife retire to Fort Lauderdale. Start eating dinner at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. You have lunch around 10, breakfast the night before. Spend most of your time wandering around malls looking for the ultimate soft yogurt and muttering, how come the kids don't call? How come the kids don't call? The 80s, you'll have a major stroke. You end up babbling to some Jamaican nurse who your wife can't stand, but who you call mama. Any questions? All right, so <laughs> that's what we have to look forward to, I guess. Uh, a little trivia, who was his son in that clip? Did you see it? Jake Gyllenhaal. Anyway, uh, a little uh, Hollywood trivia that doesn't really matter. So uh, the, the idea is that we get cynical, and cynicism is something many of us face. However, I will say, I think it's important before we start this month-long conversation about cynicism, that cynicism in its inception didn't start as a pessimistic worldview at all. Classical cynicism actually began as a, an optimistic outlook in life. It was a way to find true happiness. So 
Classical cynicism, if you've ever been a student of philosophy and you hear people criticizing cynics, like your mind kind of explodes because you've got classical cynicism in, in your mind. And classical cynicism wasn't inherently bad. It began in the 5th century BC in the, in the Greek empire and the rise of the Greek worldview. And the, some of the best Greek scholars decided that the reason people were so miserable is that they're living for superficialities. And that if we reject such worldly pursuits like, uh, you know, higher education and career and renown and respect and all this, we reject money, we reject passions like lust and stuff like that, then we find our truest happiness. And so you had really uh, respected scholars with high levels of, you know, educational uh, achievement and with good families, good pedigree, you know, good respect in the community, and you had them rejecting worldly pursuits, and they became beggars on the street. And they, they encouraged others to do the same. They said, if you want to find true happiness, if you want to be your truest self, come live with us on the street. If you want to try to imagine what that must have been like, I don't know if you've ever been to Portland. Portland just feels like that to me. Like, you got some really educated people who just are living on the street. And they, the cynics became beggars on the street. They became panhandlers. And so even as they criticized this world and all of its worldly pursuits, they asked for the charity from that same world. Because they lived on the streets, they didn't call themselves cynics. They were called cynics because the word cynic in Greek kind of means like dog or dog-like. And so they lived on the streets like dogs. That's where the word cynic came from because it was the establishment people uh, talking down to these cynics. And so, you know, it kind of became uh, a movement that a lot of young people got attached to and, uh, and was a positive thing, we thought. Um, and, and by the time Jesus walks the earth, it's still going strong. So five, in the 5th century BC, all the way to the 1st century AD, the, this movement called cynicism really grew. And it was kind of in its heyday in Jesus' time. And many scholars have wondered if any of the allusions to uh, beggars in the New Testament, especially in the Gospels, uh, actually were some part of that cynical movement. You know, And biblical scholars have often wondered how impacted Jesus was by the cynical worldview because there does seem to be some overlap, right? So Jesus said things like uh, to the rich young ruler, go sell all that you have and give it away to the poor. Like that's something a cynic would say in the classical sense, right? Or Jesus said, store up your treasure in heaven and not on earth. Again, that's kind of a cynical mantra in the classical sense. So there may have been a little bit of overlap. And if you want to come back to the 5 p.m. service tonight at our q and I'll dig into that a little bit more and how that seems to be God's plan to use worldly systems and worldviews to pave the way for his true message. But can't get into it right now. But, uh, but there, there were some important distinctions between the cynical worldview and the gospel of Jesus, not least of which were the core promises made by each. So the core promise of the gospel of Jesus is that by his grace, you can be made holy. Jesus will make you holy. But the core promise of classical cynicism was that by rejecting worldly pursuits and pleasures, you can be happy. You can find your happiness. And I think this is how, I think this is where we see the turn historically from classical cynicism that was an optimistic worldview about happiness and finding yourself to the pessimistic downtrodden, just dark thing that cynicism is today. 
Because cynicism couldn't deliver on its promise. Cynicism couldn't make anybody happier. So they gave away all their stuff and they were just as unhappy as they were before. But now they're hungry too. <laughs> so it was even worse. So it was, it was like doubling down on your unhappiness. It didn't really fix anything. And so I think that's how the, the cynics of old became what we know as cynics um, today. Uh, George Carlin, the famous comedian before he died, he said, inside every cynical person is a disappointed optimist. Inside every cynical person is a disappointed optimist. All right. So I think this is the recipe for how we become modern-day cynics. I think step one in that process is that everybody we trust tells us from day one that we deserve to find happiness and that we're born to be happy and that if anything in our life doesn't give us happiness, then we should be free to walk away from it and go find something or someone who does. Step two is they send us out into the world to pursue that which we were told about in step one. So we're, we spend years chasing after this elusive happiness, and we find it in little bits and pieces. And we discover it and rediscover it and rediscover it, and every time we try to grasp it, it eludes us. And so we know what happiness looks like, but we can never seem to grasp it. And by the look of other people's social media feeds and their faces when we see them at church on Sundays, it seems as though other people are grasping happiness. And we are not. And so this years of pursuing happiness and failing leads us to more frustration and self-loathing, which takes us to step three in the process, which I think step three is basically blaming everybody else in your life for your lack of happiness. Your parents who told you to find it, maybe they're standing in your way of it. Or your girlfriend, your boyfriend, your spouse, your best friend, your ex, your teacher, your preacher, your government. Somebody is to blame because you're doing everything right and you're not as happy as everybody else. And if you throw those ingredients into the pressure cooker of your heart and let it simmer, one day you wake up and you realize, I'm a cynic. I'm in a pretty dark place. And basically, modern cynicism is that dark place. It's the giving up, essentially giving up the hope that we can change, giving up any sense of God's purpose in life, that anything really means anything. I think you might be surprised, if you're not very familiar with Scripture, you might be surprised how prevalent that worldview that we call modern cynicism is in the Bible. It even predates the original cynicism. It's in the oldest parts of the Bible. This kind of worldview that just says well, nothing really matters, right? It's in the Bible, and it's not there as just a cautionary tale, like don't do that, don't believe what they believe. It's like part of the Bible. It's baked in. And that's one thing that I love about Scripture is that it's, it, doesn't, it doesn't make any bones about the fact that we struggle. Like the struggle of life is in the story of Scripture. It's not whitewashed. It's not all joy and happiness. It is the fullness of the human experience. And so if you ever have sat down to read something like Ecclesiastes, it will bum you out. Like, seriously. And it's not like, it doesn't bum you out and then like cheer you up at the end. It bums you out start to finish. And there's little glimpses within it of hope. Like there's little things where they're like, well, maybe it's all about God, but I'm miserable. You know, like it's just... It's there. They didn't take it out of the Bible. They could have at certain points in history, I suppose, but it's there. 
And I think it's there for a very important reason, because some parts of Scripture are not meant to be read in a vacuum, but in light of other parts of Scripture. And some parts of Scripture are not meant to be taken merely at face value, but are meant to be juxtaposed against the gospel. And we find ourselves, who we are in this part of Scripture, and who God is calling us to be in this. We see the difference, and it helps us to see the roadmap from here to there. Such is the case with Ecclesiastes. I want to just read this very depressing book to you for just a second. Is that okay? Y'all good? So Ecclesiastes chapter 1, I'm going to read the first chapter to you, and it's going to be in your study guides that you have. Uh, you were given study guides when you came in. It's also on the screens. And you know what? It's also in your Bibles. So if you have one of those, like you can open to Ecclesiastes or a Bible app. And I'm just going to read from chapter 1 of Ecclesiastes as we talk more about um, cynicism here. Here we go. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. That's how he opens his book. Meaningless, meaningless. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come, generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place where the streams come from, there they return again. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, there's something new. It was here already, long ago. Ever, you know, in the, the poo show, the, the Eeyore? Does it sound like Eeyore to you? It sounds like Eeyore. I want to do it in his voice. It was here already. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to do that. Okay. No. 945 didn't get that. I'm all I'm saying. So. No one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. I have seen all the things that are under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. What is crooked can't be made straight. What is lacking can't be counted. I said to myself, look, I've increased in wisdom more than anyone who's ruled over Jerusalem before me. I've experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly, but I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind, for with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. A word of God for the people of God. Do you know such depressing stuff is in the Bible? Why is it in there? And it doesn't, it doesn't really resolve in itself. Why is it in there? Like, who wrote this stuff? Well, we kind of know a little bit about the guy that wrote this stuff. He says he's the son of David, the king of Israel. So this guy is Solomon. Solomon wrote this stuff. And this is a classic image of Solomon surrounded by all the people that persecuted and hated him. And his, wait, no, those are his wives and concubines. Sorry. He had 700 wives, 300 beautiful concubines, all of whom were tasked with fulfilling his every desire. 
If you look closely enough, you'll also see he had a pack of monkeys, all his own. Uh, he shipped in monkeys from all over the world uh, that just played in his backyard because he liked to watch monkeys run around in his backyard. Uh, to give you an idea of the kind of wealth this guy had, he lived and ruled over the most prosperous time in Israel's history, the golden age. The borders were expanding. The economy was booming. He had 20 palaces, all his own. He had uh, 500 chariots, all his own. He had fleets of ships. He had the Queen of Sheba coming to spend the night with him, the most beautiful woman in the world, reportedly. Uh, you know, he, he had everything, everything that in your worldly mind, everything you could ever imagine. You know? And yet, he writes this toward the end of his life. He has lived in the lap of luxury. So where does he get off writing something like this, something so depressing? It would seem as though somebody treated so well by life would write something a little more cheerful than meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. Life is awful, nothing ever changes. You die and everyone forgets you. And that's it. I think we know how someone so richly blessed in this life comes to a place where they just say, nothing matters. We know it because we've lived it. We know it because we've fallen for the same lie that Solomon fell for. It's the oldest trick in the book. The trick that tells you that your main purpose in life is to live for your happiness first. And we know that it is a truism now that a man who lives for his own happiness first and chases his own happiness first is destined to never find it. We know it. We've seen it. People that live for themselves are miserable. Right? And, and yet we fall for the same thing because while we're not as wealthy or as well off as Solomon was, maybe, we're not that far away. We don't have a pack of monkeys playing in our backyards, probably. Do you? We've got a pretty good life, though. Like, we've got, we've got it pretty good. Like, there's all kinds of stuff that we enjoy that, that people in other times and places would never imagine the average person enjoying. Maybe a king would enjoy some of the stuff we've got. Maybe a king would get, you know, this machine that drives you around at all speeds and has seat warmers in it, you know, like you can turn on when your behind gets a little chilly or something, you know, it's like, y'all turn y'all's on this week, by the way? I did. Mine still works. Is y'all's? It's... <laughs> the best invention ever, like seat warmers in your car. It's just wonderful. We've got all these things. We've got, we've got, uh, we've got water, unlimited water that's pretty clean, I think. A dishwasher, clothes washer. We've got uh, all kinds of luxuries, luxurious sheets that we go to sleep in at night. We've got all kinds of you know, entertainments and things like that. We've got, uh, you know, those, those toilets from Japan. Some of y'all got those Japanese toilets that, that do just everything. Like, it just, it's just, uh, it's an amazing, some of y'all have those. You know who you are. You're the, <laughs> the biggest smiles in the room. Have those Japanese toilets. <laughs> Imagine going back in time 300 years and saying all the stuff you have and bragging about it, and then they're like, what kind of king are you? And you're like, I'm, I'm, I'm in oil and gas. <laughs> Can you imagine? And yet, although we have more than any people have ever had in the past, 
Although Western civilization and democracy and uh, free market capitalism have, by the standard of you know, quality of life, been pretty good to us. You can debate me on that if you want, but I, it's pretty clear. The data pretty much show that quality of life have increased wherever these things have gone, and we've benefited from them. And, and yet, even though we've got more than anyone has ever had in the past, even though we're more secure than anyone's ever been in the past, even though we've got deep freezers with meat you know, from some deer we killed six years ago, like just sitting there waiting just in case, you know, like it's, it's amazing to me because we're still so afraid. We've got all this security and we're still so insecure. All these riches and we're still living as though things are scarce. You know, we've got all these things to be happy about and we're still so anxious and medicated and depressed and suicidal. Far more suicidal than other societies that have a fraction of the stuff we enjoy. What is that? How do we get to the place where we have more but we are less happy? I think we know. And I think it's because we fell for the same trick that, uh, that Solomon did. Now, here's the core issue. It's not what it looks like on the surface. The core issue is that we fall for the trick of measuring value of life extrinsically. This is very important because this is just a given. Everyone here has been predisposed to value human life extrinsically. So you value the people more who have more to give. You value yourself more when you produce more. And so it's this really sinister thing that takes us over and it might have something to do with those things I mentioned earlier, Western civilization and free market capitalism. I don't know, but, but something is within us now that we naturally see ourselves and one another on a scale and that scale is based on extrinsic worth and production. So you are worth what you produce or what you have, what you're holding, what you make. And so are other people. They are worth what they produce. And this kind of extrinsic valuation of life is the opposite of what, uh, of the way God created us to be. And I'm going to tell you, you, if you struggle with cynicism at all, it probably goes back to this. And you will never, ever break the cycle of cynicism that wants to keep your soul in hell until you learn to see and acknowledge the intrinsic value of yourself and each person you know, each person in your path intrinsic worth. And what I mean by that is that as opposed to, to assessing someone's worth based on what they have, what they're holding, what they make, including yourself, you learn to see and acknowledge the intrinsic worth based on the image of God in each person. So we're not worth what we produce. We're worth what God says we're worth. This is the foundation of our 
thought process here as Christians. Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27, God says, uh, let us create humankind, I'm gonna make them in my image. And so throughout scripture, you see that God makes each person in his image, and when we fall and we, we lose sight of that image, what he wants to do through Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, is to restore in us that image, to bring that image back from deep inside of us, buried under all this sin, to clear off the sin and bring, the surface, bring to the surface the image of God again. That's the intrinsic worth of each person. And the reason this matters for this conversation on cynicism is as long as you see people's value extrinsically, you'll lose sight of what the Bible begins with that each person is created in God's image. You lose sight of what Jesus said to a bunch of nobodies and average ordinary people, who, a crowd that included prostitutes and beggars. He said, you are the light of the world. So let your light shine before men. And his apostle Peter picked it up in his first letter when he said, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. That's an important phrasing there because for us, we hear that God made us in his image and we think, yeah, of course, that's what the Bible says. Let's move on. But what you need to know is historically speaking in every time and place, the only men who were said to be created in the image of God were kings. And they were created in the image of their gods, supposedly. They bore the divine image. But the, the, the Bible says it's not just the kings of this earth who are made in the image of God that we are all divine image bearers, each and every one of us, including you, including the one you're sitting next to, including the one who cut you off on the way here today, uh, including the person you find most difficult to love, and including the people, the groups of people in your life whom you find most difficult to love for whatever reason, because Overcoming cynicism in your life involves overcoming all the other isms too because you've been conditioned, preconditioned, prepackaged by your upbringing, by this society to be more suspicious of people who are not like you. You're less likely to see the image of God in a person who is not like you. You're more likely to be suspicious, to discount their worth, become cynical toward groups of people who your parents or grandparents or just society told you to be cynical about. But a view of human worth that comes intrinsically rather than extrinsically sets us free. Sets us free from this ongoing rat race of seeking worth by production. Cynicism says nothing's ever gonna change. People are people. People don't change. You can't trust people. Trust no one. And God says, I made every person in my image. And I'm going to bring that image back to the surface. I'm not done with them yet. Solomon says, meaningless, meaningless. There's nothing new under the sun. Everything that's happened will happen again. Blah, blah, blah. Eeyore. And Jesus says, you're the light of the world. Your light matters. Shine your light. One of my favorite Christian thinkers, G.K. Chesterton, put it this way. He said, there's a lot of stuff that's hard to believe in the Bible. I know there's a lot of stuff that's hard to believe at church. But he says, every person matters. You matter. I matter. It's the hardest thing in theology to believe. I'm going to just take an aside real quick and talk to those of you who have been deep in cynicism for a little longer than the average cynic. 
because I know this journey. I know it well. And if you've been deep in your cynicism for a long time and you see other people as a threat or you see other people as a nuisance or you have turned on those closest to you because they are the reason you're not happy. And your cynicism has so taken over your hard heart that you're actually relieved when those closest to you fail in the same way they failed before because you called it. And their failure has proved you right. Listen, some of us are so deep in our cynicism that we're making cynics out of our spouses. We're making cynics out of our friends groups because we are so intent on reminding them of their failures. Instead of calling to the surface and loving to the surface the image of God in each one. When was the last time, if you're married, when was the last time your spouse heard you say or really believed that you saw the image of God in them? When was the last time you told your kid, I see God inside you and you drive me insane, but I'm going to keep loving you until I love the God that's in you to the surface. I know he's there. I know the image of God is in there somewhere. Instead of just piling on and expecting the worst and lowering the bar of expectation, when was the last time those around you believed that you believed in them? There is no room for cynicism of this sort in the gospel. And the more Jesus claims you, the more cynicism he chases away. And whatever cynicism remains in you after coming to Jesus is just a relic of the old self. It's time to kill it off. And let him restore you again. You're afraid. I know you're afraid. I was afraid too. You're afraid of sounding stupid. And you're afraid of saying you're sorry. You'd rather double down on the mistakes you've made because you're too proud to admit you messed up. And you were wrong. On your way home today, if that person is with you in the car, tell them you're wrong. And tell them you're sorry. And ask for their help breaking free from these chains of cynical thought. And if you're the other person in the car, and quite frankly, you're tired of their whatever, you got to watch it too. Because there's nothing that makes cynics like living with a cynic. So you might try to answer harshly with doubts of your own. Listen, there's a lot at stake here. There's a lot at stake. Let Jesus make your heart new. Say goodbye to the old self instead of being stuck in those ruts of resentment and rage and just resignation to who you were. Because the other path you were on just leads to death and devastation. Because no matter how much you make or how much you have, as long as you measure your worth extrinsically, you will always feel worthless. 
because there will always be somebody else making more than you. There will always be some guy working harder than you. There will always be some girl that has more than you. There will always be some family that takes more luxurious vacations than you, or at least it looks like it on Instagram. Who really knows? Who really knows what kind of vacation that was? It could have been hell on earth for them. You don't know, but on Instagram, it looks amazing, and you think you're worth less because they have so much more fun than you, and why can't we do that? And their kids look so much more put together than you. You don't know, really, how messed up their kids are. They just look put together, and so you make your kids feel like less because we value even our own kids based on extrinsic worth. There's no quicker path to hell on earth. And Jesus wants so much better for you. He doesn't promise you happiness, but he promises you holiness. Nobody who searches for their own happiness first ever finds it. But those who receive the holiness of Christ find joy without fail. I came across a meme, a, a meme that was really making fun of Christians. I, didn't, I didn't, didn't show it. I haven't even talked about it in the other services. You see, 11 o'clock is like a bonus service. Uh, <laughs> It was a picture of uh, Christians in the Roman Colosseum, the first Christians that were bound together in the middle of the Roman Colosseum. It was full of people cheering, and the hungry lions were coming for them. You know, they killed Christians for sport that way, and they sold tickets. And these Christians weren't recanting. They were crying out to Jesus and looking forward to their life in heaven. But the meme said... God has a great and wonderful plan for your life. And it was a snarky meme. It was making fun of Christians. God has a great and wonderful plan for your life. And these Christians were being killed. I opened my eyes to this reality that following Jesus is never supposed to be about your happiness. But it is about your joy. Because when you measure your worth intrinsically instead of extrinsically, listen, Everything else can go away. And you don't change. Your worth doesn't change. Your sense of self doesn't change. Because it all comes from God and having been created in his image. And so the nuclear apocalypse can come and not change who you are on the inside. Your career can go away. Everything can fail you. People can let you down. And your sense of worth doesn't change because it comes from within, from God. And that's freedom. That's real joy. A few years back, uh, <laughs> I uh, decided my kids were finally old enough on July the 4th to watch dad blow stuff up. So I, uh, I grew up in the country and it was a big family tradition. My dad always blew stuff up for us. And so I thought it was my fatherly duty to blow stuff up for my kids. And they were five and three at the time, uh, which I thought I had waited long enough. And so uh, I went to the, the shady uh, fireworks store off the highway and uh, went to, to, to load up. This was in Kansas City. Nobody follows the law in Kansas City. Everybody just blows stuff up. So nobody cares about what the city says. And, and uh, so I had it all lined up. You know, I, I started with my uh, dancing flowers, you know, the that dance all over. And, and then I had the black cats and I had it all lined up from littlest to biggest. And at the end of it was like, you know, just missiles and stuff. <laughs> so I was ready, man. It was a whole show I was going to put on for my kids. And, and uh, long story short, the whole night, a 
complete disappointment. Just one dud after another. Couldn't even get the punk thing lit, you know? And, uh, and I was like, my kids were like, what's wrong, daddy? And I was like, I can't light the punk. And they were like, what's a punk? And I was like, this is a punk. And they said, you're a punk. And I was like, you're right, I'm a punk. You know, I can't even light it. And I was, even the ones I did light wouldn't do what they were supposed to do. And it was just this feeling of failure and it was all over. And my kids was like, is that it, daddy? And I was like, yeah, that's it. Just hating myself and started to clean up my little pile of shame. And, and as I did, I heard them start laughing and frolicking behind me. They weren't laughing at me anymore. They were running around in the yard now. And I realized my children at five and three, because we, we kind of helicopter parent, my kids have never been, at this point, had never been outside in the dark in the summertime. And they were caught up in this awe of the show God was putting on these fireflies, and they said, Daddy, we want to catch them. And I said, Giovanna, run inside and get some mason jars. And she did, and we came out and caught them. Just, y'all remember to cut the holes in the top. Because <laughs> it was fun for a couple minutes. Anyway. You see me battling cynicism? <laughs> What occurred to me then was that it was never really up to me to put on a show for my kids. And I realized that all my worst mistakes as a parent have been when I've put a lot of pressure on myself to overcompensate for my failures by filling the void in their little hearts with plastic stuff or explosives or whatever. (laughs) And I've tried and tried to put on a show for them. They don't really want that from me or need it. All they want is for me to come and chase the fireflies with them and to enjoy the show God puts on for us. And sometimes, instead of just being constantly disappointed with our failures and missteps and inability to entertain our kids, and sometimes all we have to do is take a step back and look at the world already God already created and Say, wow. Just take it in. And teach our kids to take it in. To not need constant stimulation in front of their faces all the time, but just to take in the wonder of God. Because he made all this, and he made us. When we learn to step back from this extrinsic valuation of ourselves and each other, we learn what it really means to be alive and to be free and to be saved from things like cynicism that want to drag our souls to hell. So wherever you are with this, whether you're a cynic or whether you love a cynic, I pray that you would understand one thing. This is a very important thing, and I know I'm running long. Y'all hang with me. The best-kept secret in Christianity is that when you've messed up many times, you're farther from God than when you messed up the first time. When you've taken many wrong turns, it just stands to reason that you're farther from your destination than when you take one. 
And that really hinders many cynics, long-time cynics, from taking a step back toward God because you don't know the way. But listen, that's not how it works with God. You're no farther from God when you take your thousandth wrong turn than you were when you took your first because he followed you every turn. He's just as close now to you as he was when you first began this little adventure of selfishness and cynicism. Coming back to him is not nearly as complicated as you think. It really just starts with one tiny step of an admission, a surrender, a simple yes to God. And that's a step you can take right here and now. And I promise that a new life, not a richer, happier life, but a new, more meaningful life is waiting for you on the other side of that yes. Let's prepare our hearts for communion now as Pastor Gio comes out to lead us through this time.